You're listening to a DM podcast. Betty would sort of run outside looking for this child, this lost child. And the Aboriginal elders were very good. They would, they'd be around, they'd know exactly where she was and they would point. And uh, in two seconds flat, you could see her down the flat there playing, chasing lizards or it was quite funny. They looked after her well. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. this podcast, I'll be taking a walk down memory lane with a lovely man, John Reedhead. John comes from a multi-generational farming family, and as he approaches his 80th birthday, his career has been long and varied. Similar to the interview I did with Venerable Royce Thompson in episode number 13, called How the Flying Doctor Started and a Priest at a Dogfight, we'll be talking about John's experiences and relationship with the Royal Flying Doctor Service back in the 70s which includes talking about his work and service at Jigalong. Now, Jigalong is in the Pilbara region of Western Australia, about 165 kilometres east of the township of Newman. The traditional owners of the land are the Matu people, represented by the Western Desert Lands Aboriginal Corporation. Jigalong was established in 1907 as the location for a maintenance and rations store for workmen who were constructing the well-known rabbit-proof fence a massive pest exclusion fence that crossed Western Australia from north to south. In the 1930s, Jigalong was used as a camel breeding site, but this use was abandoned once the motor car superseded the camel as a mode of transportation. Now, I also want to mention for relevance and cultural accuracy that Jigalong was described in the book Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence, a book published in 1996 and based on a true story and personal account of an Aboriginal family's experiences as members of the Stolen Generation, which was the forced removal of children from their families during the early 20th century. The book tells a story of three young Aboriginal girls, Molly, the author's mother, Daisy, Molly's half-sister, and Gracie, their cousin, who were forcibly removed from their families at Jigalong and taken to Moore River, but escape from the government settlement in 1931 and then trek over 1,600 kilometres home by following the rabbit-proof fence. This book was also released as a film, and if you haven't seen it, I strongly recommend you do. In 1947, the Jigalong land was quote-unquote granted to the Apostolic Church by the government of the day, and the Aboriginal community that lived there ended up under the control of that Christian mission. In 1969, the Jigalong land was returned to the Australian government as an Aboriginal reserve and was granted to the Matu people in 1974. A short while later, John Reedhead, the lovely man I'm interviewing today, 
found himself there at Jigalong. Hello, John. How you going? I'm good. I'm really good. Before we dive into Jigalong, could you tell me a little bit about your family's farming history and where you grew up? Sure. Um, I guess it all stemmed from my uh, three times great-grandfather who was a convict uh, who was sent to Perth in 1855 for sheep stealing. Um, He was basically a farmer and uh, all his descendants down through our own family to me have all been farmers or past farmers. And did you grow up on on the property on a horse uh, doing cattle mustering and that sort of thing? Was that the entire, um, was your childhood really rich in that sense? Uh, Yes, it was. I I can recall... uh, many instances uh, when I was a child on the farm with uh, horse. We always had um, pet animals uh, like any other uh, child. I mean, there were the lambs, there was calves, kangaroos, dogs, sheep, cattle and, and everything that you can think of. And uh, I grew up through that going to uh, early school and then I ended up at um, boarding school in Perth for uh, eight years Wow. And after I left boarding school, I then went back to to the farm. That's a long way away, isn't it? Pilbara to Perth for boarding school. Was that um, a a real change for you? We didn't have the cattle station then. Uh, Our farm was uh, in several places. Um, We had farms at Minganew, which was uh, just a little bit south east of Geraldton. And uh, we sold that and we shifted to a smaller property at Mewshay, which is about 40, 50 miles uh, north of Perth. And that, that's basically where I grew up. So, so you weren't away, a long way away from family? No, no. Um, although the, the terms of the school were 13 weeks and I only used to go home about every 13 weeks. So although it was only a short distance from Perth, I I didn't see the family that much, no. Now, as you spent so much time in different locations on the land, was was that something that you wanted to do in terms of a career? Did you have a clear idea about what you wanted to do back then? Yeah, I I think I, uh, when I left school and went back to the farm, I thought, well, you know, that this is what uh, I wanted to do. However, the farm was small and, and it wasn't sustainable enough to uh, have two families um, on the farm, so I chose to leave, and um, I did some other work elsewhere. And how did you come to meet your lovely wife Betty? Uh, long story, but uh, we used to have a lot of friends out on the farm for uh, barbecues and things, and that was, that was uh, friends from Perth. They introduced me to people who sailed at Royal Perth Yacht Club, and so I used to go twilight sailing and that's where I met Betty because her father was a sailor he owned a boat and she sailed and then I sailed and that's the end of it (laughs) oh wow that sounds very romantic and as I'm doing this recording with you at the moment you're sitting there I think in the Perth Yacht Club is that right where are you at the moment I, I am. I'm, I'm sitting in my office. I'm the voluntary archivist curator here, which I've been doing for about 27 years. I come down daily and, and do my work. I, I'm pretty well uh, able to be able to come and go as I please. 
Um, I've been a member of the club now for nearly 56 years, so I'm, I'm well-versed into what happens down here. Wow. Okay, so sailing is in the blood in addition to being a man of the land because I, I actually um, saw one of your Facebook profile photos, which is from a long time ago when you were a young John, astride a horse and you were tanned and strong and comfortable. <laughs> and I thought, gosh, that's a man who who looks like he's grown up on the land, but I suspect you're just as good uh, on a yacht as well, John. The, the, the photo you saw was taken uh, on a horse called Daylight, uh, and that was up on the cattle station in the Pilbara. It's a great photo. <laughs> so as a young married couple, so there you are, you've met uh, out on the water and as a young married couple, what was the plan? Were you going to get your own property or what did you decide at that time? No, that wasn't really the intent. We, we uh, I had a job in Perth at a, at a major steel company for a, for a good number of years and it wasn't until after that, that, that uh, and after we sold the cattle station, that we decided that uh, we'd go and, and, and look for work as in managing uh, an Aboriginal community, which is what where we ended up, yeah. So tell me again, how did you end up being or finding out that there was a job available at Jigalong? It, it was, it was in fact, in the paper, but uh, I didn't see it, but someone alerted me to it and, and I immediately uh, applied to it because the... Um, Criteria was something that I uh, felt as though that I could handle without any uh, without any problems, and and hence I ended up getting the job straight away. So now you'd spoken to the elders already at that community, um, correct? Could you tell me about that conversation? Yeah, uh, when we saw the ad, a friend of mine said, uh, "Look, why don't we drive up there and, and have a talk to them?" Well, we had to uh, contact them by telegram or. By, via the flying doctor because obviously there was no um, uh, telephone uh, and they agreed to meet us or to meet me uh, uh, on, a, on a, um, a, a basis that wasn't uh, formal. So we went out there, we stayed at Newman, went out, drove out the next day and, and had a meeting with them and they virtually gave me the job on the spot but they told me that um, they had to go through the formality of it so... Uh, they, uh, we, went, we ended up going back to Perth. They then sent me a telegram back to Perth and said, uh, we've booked your airfare, would you fly back up and have a formal interview? Which Betty and I and Philippa, the daughter, who was about one at the time, so we all went up and spent the weekend there and were interviewed by the uh, Council of Elders, uh, shown around the township a little bit and met other people that were there flew home uh, to uh, end up receiving the telegram to say, come back again, you got the job. <laughs> Could you describe for me that community? Because it had quite a few facilities. There was, you know, a health clinic and a general store. And at that time, so this is 19, the mid-70s. There was about 600 Aboriginals on the community. Um, there was a community health service, nursing service there that had always two resident nurses, sometimes up to four, and they had a, they had a health clinic. There was a uh, obviously a school, a headmaster and about four teachers that taught in the school, plus teachers' aides who were Aboriginal. I had a store manager uh, who looked after the store under my direction. We had a mechanic serviceman that used to service the vehicles, run the powerhouse, also under my direction. 
and late, later on, many years later, uh, uh, they had things like resident police stations, um, swimming pools and all sorts of things. But at that time, our local policeman was from Nullagine, a bloke, a chap called Fred Heald, who we came very uh, friendly with. Um, and he used to come down generally about once a fortnight to um, issue firearms licences or car licences and, and do general police business. And he would stay overnight with us, do his policing business, and then he'd disappear back to Nullagine. Mm. Um, his policing district, incidentally, was one of the largest in the world. It, it stemmed uh, from Jigalong uh, across the Canning Stock Route virtually to the uh, West Australian border. So uh, we uh, had a lot of work with, with Fred when he used to come out when people were lost on the stock route or had problems there. We, we helped him out in that respect. Now, you're, to be clear, your role there at Jigalong was uh, not really so much as head honcho, if I could use the term, but more a coordinating and liaison role. Is that correct? That would be right, yeah. I, I ran the white staff and their duties, but I liaised with the Council of Elders. We used to have meetings at least once a week with the council, which was generally a council head and up to about five, six or eight councillors at any one time. We'd sit around in a bow shed or under the shade of a tree or, or if it happened to be wet, which was very rarely, uh, in a building and, and we'd talk about, we had an agenda uh, of which they would add to the list and uh, we just generally sat around like, like a board of management and discussed the community, the, how the community worked, what we had to do, where we were going, etc. Now, you and Betty, both in your mid-20s, had this beautiful young daughter who was just about one years old at the time. It must have been a, a big change to move from where you were uh, previously to Jigalong. What was that experience like for you and Betty and your daughter to, to move to such a, an amazingly remote community? Okay, uh, it wasn't so bad for me. Uh, it was a little bit daunting for Betty. She hadn't been into a community, or although she had visited Jigalong on a couple of times, so she wa it wasn't uh, something brand new to her. With the child of one year, um, it didn't really bother her because she didn't know any difference, um, and she integrated with the children there without any problem at all. We were given kin groups. Each person was given a kin group which helped us integrate with various members of the community, including the, the heads of the, the two tribes that were there. So, so that, that made it a bit easier, but that, that was a common thing. Um, all employees were given this kin group and, and that's uh, how you, uh, as I say, integrated with them. What did you grow to love about Jigalong? We, we both liked the remoteness of it. That that wasn't a problem. Um, our communication was via the RFDS um, uh, through the Mikathara base. We had a daily sked every morning and there were other skeds during the course of the day which we attended if we wanted to to receive telegrams, which was our only way of communicating. We had a... Uh, weekly mail run into Mount Newman, which is about 180k away, where we collected various bits and pieces for the community. We used to collect, uh, go, go to the bank where the bank would pre-prepare our money that 
ran the community. We had a, we had an actual bank at the community where the disability checks and the pension checks came through, and they were actually deposited into uh, individual passbook accounts. And the bank was opened each day in the morning for a couple of hours where the elders or the, the recipients of people who had money in their passbooks would come in and they would withdraw $5, $10, whatever it happened to be, so they could go to the store and uh, buy their daily groceries. They, did, they never bought groceries for a week or anything like that because they had no way of storing or refrigeration. So they they buy their groceries for the day, their meals for the day. Hmm. And you mentioned earlier to me some lovely stories of your young daughter playing with the locals. And would you describe that for me? Yeah, she, as I mentioned before, she, she integrated with the uh, Aboriginal kids uh very quickly and almost every day uh, several of them and it could be anything up to 10 or 12 would come up to the uh, to the house and they would play with her with her toys out in the bow shed uh, and then uh, without knowing without Betty knowing um, she'd suddenly disappear down the camp with the kids and of course um, Betty would sort of run outside looking for this child this lost child and the aboriginal elders were very good they would they'd be around they'd know exactly where she was and they would point and uh, in two seconds flat you could see her down the flat there playing chasing lizards or it was quite funny they looked after her well yeah look it sounds like an absolute heaven for a small child absolutely wondrous we used to have a, a resident anthropologist on site but he was a jigalong for probably six or seven years his mission was to study the language there. So he studied the three languages that were in the community and he always told me that uh, Aboriginal language, particularly the Madhu language, was one of the fastest spoken languages in the world. And there was another uh, visiting anthropologist who worked uh, a lot with the community and he in fact wrote a couple of books, a bloke called uh, Bob Tonkinson. And he, he used to visit every now and again and, and stay with us. Uh, and I can recall uh, uh, one Christmas time, Bob was having Christmas with us and Pippa, who must have been probably going on two then or might, might be three, I can't recall, she she incidentally uh, used to speak the language, the Māori language at that age, far better than we could. And she came out with this string of language which Bob Tonkinson nearly fell off his chair and wet himself. What she was saying was some of the rudest, most foulest words that that you could ever think of that the kids had taught her. Well, of course, she didn't know that. <laughs> and, and this was over Christmas dinner that this came out. There were some funny stories like that, so... That's great. Now, did you have to deal with or manage uh, many accidents or injuries or sicknesses while you were there? Um, generally, the, the nursing staff had their clinic. They looked after the general sickness of the community. Uh, where it came to accidents in terms of car accidents or, or whatever, I only got involved when there was an aircraft that had to be called in for evacuation. Every morning we would go out to the airstrip and clear the airstrip of um, 
uh, straying cattle or maybe animals or any debris that might have been on there. So it, it was clear for any aircraft to land during the day. Uh, my heavily involvement was at night time, if there was a night evacuation for some particular reason, a very sick person or an accident or, or whatever, the, the uh, nursing sisters would uh, come over and wake me up and say that we had a flight. Uh, the flight was due in at, say, uh, 2 o'clock in the morning or whatever. So uh, I would then wake up the uh, mechanic and together we would uh, collect the flares and take them out, refuel them, light them and prepare the strip uh, for a landing which would occur generally about an hour later. Where was the plane coming from? Was it coming from Broome or Port Hedland? Or? 90% of the uh, night flights came from Port Hedland base. Occasionally, if there wasn't an aircraft there, it may come from Carnarvon or somewhere else and that would be a greater delay, but... Uh, 99% of the cases, it, it, they came from Port Hedland, which I think was generally about a, around about a two-hour flight from memory. So you mentioned to me at one point that somebody had a bright idea about putting flares on drums. Could you tell me about that? When I got there, I was uh, told in no uncertain terms about how uh, flares should be laid. And there was a story that uh, was told. Uh, this this was many probably in the in the years of the Apostolic Church, where someone uh, in their wisdom thought if he put the flares on top of the drum, the the pilot would see them more clearly. Well, of course, um, the the pilots generally thought when they saw the light, that was the ground, and suddenly there was another four feet of of clear space <laughs> underneath. So it was a bit disconcerting but there was there was no question that uh, that was very a, a very dangerous uh, application and it never happened again it certainly not in my time i can imagine that that would have absolutely scared the bejesus out of the pilot <laughs> normally as you, as you would well know the rfds pilots are well skilled in landing on all sorts of strips and and in all sorts of weather, so they're, they're, they're pretty schooled at it. Anyway, um, uh, I, I guess uh, it didn't happen again. When we first started uh, night flights or when I was there, we, we started using car headlights. We'd alert a lot of members of the community that who'd come out and we'd light the strip by facing the cars down one particular way on the strip, but that didn't last long. We got a bit sick of that. Uh, so we had a whole lot of um, milk tins, powder milk tins, which we filled with sand and then filled with dieseline and, and we lit those. Well, they, they would stay alight for generally about an hour, so we had to be fairly careful in knowing when the aircraft was coming in so as at least uh, he had some light on the strip. If there was a delay... Uh, the nursing staff would alert us and we'd, we'd put the lights out and then relight them. Hmm. Uh, that lasted for a couple of years. And then uh, I was on a, a business trip to Perth and I went to the Department of Civil Aviation stores and managed to procure some purpose-made uh, airstrip lighting uh, containers. And uh, we used those ever since and they, they were far more efficient. And to the best of my knowledge, that was probably what they would be using now. Oh, that's good. Very good. Now, you also mentioned, John, that at one point there was a fire in the little general store that was there. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, it, it was late in the afternoon and, and uh, someone alerted me to the fact that our store was alight and we, we had a, uh, a purpose-made trailer with a tank on it and a, and a motor and fire hoses, which we, um, if, if the need arise, and this was the first occasion we'd used it, certainly in anger, it would be hooked onto a four-wheel drive and, and towed over to where the fire was, motor started and hoses pulled out, etc. On the back of the trailer was a, a sort of a board where people could stand and control the hoses, etc. So on this particular night, the mechanic was driving, so we drove to the shed, we hooked the machine on or the trailer on. I stood on the back of the trailer and he drove towards the fire probably a little faster than he should have done. The trailer became unhitched. Uh, he kept going because he didn't know and I was going the other way down the hill standing on the back of this trailer heading away from the fire. <laughs> uh, he, the, the trailer ended up uh, nosing into the dirt and, and, and stopped. But um, it, it was a bit of a funny incident, but... Um, everything turned out okay. Did you end up losing a lot of stock in the store? Because when you have such a remote community, those are such valuable assets. Um, it actually happened, it was an electrical fire and it happened in the meat store and we didn't know how to what extent it was going to burn. We had fire extinguishers and bits and pieces, but a lot of the Aboriginal older people, because they were concerned, came over to the store and they cleaned all the shelves out of the, uh, of the, of the dry goods, the canned goods and the bits and pieces uh, that were on there and put them out on tarpaulins out on the flat beside the store. And as it happened, um, we got the fire out and at night time arose and all those uh, dry goods and bits and pieces that were taken out of the store on the tarpaulins were left out overnight. There was no one there to look at or oversee them to see that they were, weren't nicked or whatever. There wasn't one piece, to the best of my knowledge, of anything there that was taken. They, they had so re much respect for the application of the store. It was a lovely example of community. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. They were they were so so caring about their own their own bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah, making sure that that everybody had the stores and and supplies that they would need. So yep. very caring community. Now, Jigalong was and it still very much is a gathering place, and um, mobs from all over the Pilbara and beyond come together for corroborees and more. So, as a white man living in uh, a community on country, did you find those experiences moving? Um, absolutely. Um, uh, I was very much privy to going to see some of the uh, men's ceremonies. Uh, I also took uh, some of the elders out onto the stock route and into the desert on cultural trips where we went out for a week or 10 days. Betty herself was invited by the women to go and see uh, and participate in women's business, dancing and, and, and whatever. Yes, it was, a, it was a good experience and um, uh, something I'll never, ever forget. Now, John, did the past history of Jigalong with forced removal of children uh, in the stolen generation, did that have an impact on you or did the elders speak of it uh, in terms of 
the impact or the trauma that it had on that community? In a word, no. It, it was never brought up, although I was aware of that sort of thing. Uh, it was never ever mentioned to me. I think they sort of kept it to themselves a little bit. It wasn't until you know, some years later where it became a, a, a more common knowledge type of thing where it was discussed openly. Uh, it, it might be now, um, but it wasn't in my time, no. And when did you end up leaving Jigalong? I think you were there for about three or four years, right? It would have been early 70s, I think, late 70s. I really can't remember. I've got a bit of a mind block there. You left because um, your daughter was uh, getting ready to go to school, is that right? Pretty much. She she did go to uh, the, the kindergarten and whatever there, but we, we, we made a conscious decision to um, make sure that she had her education. Uh, then we then we shifted um, back to Perth, yeah. And have you been back to Jigalong since that time? My wife be- went back oh, probably for two or three years running and she used to help them do their tax returns. Uh, I went back, I think, at least two, maybe three occasions as relief manager. They, they could never get uh, relief managers there. So when the the manager after me and, and after him uh, wanted to go on leave. Uh, I went back and did the relief managing there. Nothing had really changed then um, except the, the doll was um, allowed into the community uh, and that, that used to cause a few problems, but um, uh, it was something that was going to happen um, mm. and they just had to work around it. Do you, when you returned, did you still have a sense of belonging and closeness to the community and to the country? Um, absolutely. Um, they were most welcoming. Uh, in fact, when we left, they wrote a letter to us and said that at any time that we wanted to return, we could as visitors uh, under any circumstances. So we sort of hold that letter. We still have the letter, not that we had anticipate a visit back in the in near future but mm. we thought that was was quite nice that they should write that letter to us oh that's lovely the royal flying doctor service has a reconciliation action plan and we're we're very actively working on it and that's because uh 30 percent of those we serve are um aboriginal or torres strait islanders and some 70 percent of indigenous australians live within the rfds national service footprint so it's really important that we at the RFDS do all we can to provide culturally appropriate and safe health services and that we recognise and understand and respect the history and the heritage of the people on whose country we fly over or we land in or we drive on. We haven't always got it right at the RFDS, uh, but we certainly are working on a journey to make sure that we're doing, doing better moving forward. And I have a number of podcast interviews coming up with amazing Indigenous Australians uh, to share their stories. Uh, And I hope these and future series can provide an additional channel for those important voices. So I really appreciate you talking to me, John, about your experiences at Jigalong and the impact it had on you and, uh, and your wonderful family. Thank you so much, John. Okay. Thanks for listening. Word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story, please share with family and friends. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community 
And you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Mm-hmm.